Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Glowworm, the podcast of the International Churchill Society. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to remind you that the Society recently hosted our 38th annual conference in London. All of the conference sessions were recorded and are free to watch on the International Churchill Society's YouTube page, including a presentation by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Simply go to youtube.com and search International Churchill Society. In this episode of Glowworm, I interview Giles Milton, best-selling author of over 20 books, including Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare and his latest book, Checkmate Berlin, The Cold War Showdown That Shaped the Modern World. Please enjoy, and if you haven't yet done so, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast. Lastly, if you're not yet a paid member of the Society, we'd love to have your support. You can join by going to winstonchurchill.org slash join. Now, please enjoy my interview with author Giles Milton. Giles Milton, welcome to the pod, which is titled Glowworm. Um, how are you? I see that you're in France. I'm in France. It's a beautiful, sunny, autumnal day, and um, I'm enjoying sitting in the sunshine. Yeah. So before we get into your writing, your incredible writing, you know, you're in you're in France. I've done a, I've done a little research on you, and I it, I think it's fair to say you really enjoy wine. Is that correct? Well. It's not by accident that I find myself in Burgundy at the moment. Um, I'm a stone's throw from Chablis, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know. Uh, although Chablis is rather expensive, you can find uh, a lot cheaper wines, which are almost as good. Yes, yes. You know, I, I, from one personal point of view, although I'm a, you know, I, I have to admit a uh, Californian wine being over here in the New World, my wife and I, absolute favorite French wine is actually Chinon from the Loire Valley. So I'm different, different from where you are, but I'm sure we could talk wine for much for many, many hours. But let's get into your writing. You know, I, I first off, I appreciate your time. Um, as you and I were talking before recording, for those listening who may remember you, you were a speaker of ours at our 2018 conference in Williamsburg, Virginia, where you were talking about your book. Uh, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. So before we talk about that specifically, you know, it seems like you've had a very diverse and varied writing career with, you know, comic books, children books, uh, but also numerous, you know, wide topics for nonfiction. Can you tell us how you began writing? Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to write um, and I wanted to write about the subjects in history that don't get taught at school, you know, we all in England, we all learn about the kings and queens and and, and the Second World War and uh, the Nazis, etc. But there are whole areas of history that never get spoken about at all. And one of these, it was actually my second book, was all about the um, East India Company, which I think we're slightly embarrassed about now, nowadays in England, you know, empire and all that. It doesn't play very well. But this was an absolutely fascinating subject, the story of these incredible English adventurers basically going out and discovering the world and trying to do global trade for the first time. And um, what was wonderful about 
the East India Company is that they kept every single record. Everything, everything was written down. Even the letters written home by their employees, everything was duplicated and copied. So I found myself with this incredible wealth of primary uh, source information. And, and that really has become the hallmark, I suppose, of all my books that I try and use wherever possible personal accounts, diaries, letters, unpublished source material to really try and bring a, a period to life with all the details, you know, not just the sort of salient historical facts, but but the gossip, the the, the stories of the food, the weather, what, what it was like to be in a place. Um, that's what I strive to do. And I was, you know, when, when researching for this conversation, I was taken aback. So I've, I've I, admittedly, I've read three of your books. I've read um, Ungentlemanly Warfare, um, I finished, um, I'm going to botch it, but the Tinker Taylor Frogman spy <laughs> about D-Day, which was incredible. Um, and I'm halfway through Checkmate in Berlin. But, I, you know, admittedly and ignorantly, you're right. You were, you've written on the slave trade in North Africa. You, you focused on one specific spice nutmeg, um, as well as Elizabethan colonization of North America. And to me, this sounds like a career of somebody simply following their interests and passions. Is that kind of how you how you've gone about your writing? I think you absolutely have to be passionate about subject when you're going to spend, you know, a good two years writing about it, um, because that will show in the prose uh, if you really are enthusiastic about a subject. Um, it's true that I've written about uh, everything from sort of 1600s right up to uh, the Cold War, which is the checkmate in Berlin, the recent one. Um, but I, there is a sort of theme running through them that they are, I think they're all about, I was trying to put it into a, a pithy little sentence, they're about extraordinary lives in extraordinary times. And I t tend to focus on individuals who've either achieved something remarkable or be, found themselves in a remarkable place at a remarkable time. And that runs all the way through the books. And, and so just to take the most recent one, uh, the kind of principal character is the American commandant of Berlin in the immediate post-war period, a fabulously named Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley, um, who really, uh, I think one could say he changed the course of history in the, in the period when he was in, in Berlin for four years immediately after the war. An amazing character and very little known, uh, certainly not in my own country, but I think in America as well, um, he's been completely overshadowed by General Lucius Clay, the governor of occupied Germany, um, and Frank Howley, who was let there on the ground doing battle with the Soviets in Berlin, has been forgotten. So he is sort of emblematic of the sort of characters in all of my books. Yeah, and I will also say, um, for those who haven't read it, and excuse me, it's Soldier Sailor Frogman. I was, I, you know, I was merging you with John Lecaré, so I'm sure you won't, you won't mind that that mental mental confusion on my part. Uh, two wonderful authors, of course. Um, you know what I really took from that book. So for for those listeners, this book, Soldier Sailor Frogman Spy, Airman, Gangster, Kill or Die: How the Allies Won on D-Day, is uh, you know a 12 a.m. to 12 p.m. Um, co cover, vast cover of, of D-Day. But what I really took from that, and I'd love for you to talk about uh, this aspect was you talk, new, you have numerous stories in the book about individual leadership from the most junior of people on D-Day. Uh, you know, at the, at the society, and I'm also the program director of the National Church of Leadership Center in DC, you know, we, we talk about leadership and it's often confined to political leaders or, or CEOs or, or what have you. But what I, what I truly appreciated about this book 
was your depiction of leadership and courage in action by those you wouldn't expect from? Um, so talk about so talk about that that undercurrent specifically in that book. Yeah, so so much about uh, D-Day was written by the commanders, the generals, um, often who were not uh, landing in the first wave of troops on the beaches. And although D-Day was the most meticulously planned invasion in history, with every sort of second on every inch of beach had been sort of worked out, of course, from the very minute the troops start to go into the beaches, everything goes wrong and the plans effectively are useless. Um, uh, and what this means is that individual uh, youngsters uh, going onto the beaches have to take crucial decisions, operational decisions, which are going to decide what happens to them and what happens to the area of beach they're trying to capture. And I wanted to focus on those stories, the sort of these raw, unvarnished stories of the youngsters um, who, in, in many cases, performed acts of great heroism. So, you know, you'd have a, a, a group of youngsters would decide to try and knock out one particular uh, German gun emplacement. And if they succeeded in that, effectively, they rendered, you know, several hundred feet of beach would be safe. There would be no more firing on the on the next wave of troops coming in. So and those stories, um, what I, I found was that not only did could I find um, amazing stories uh, from the very front line of battle of the Americans and Brits going in and Canadians, but I also went to the German archives and I had the stories of the German fighters inside those bunkers. So you end up with an incredibly powerful narrative because you're telling this gripping story from both sides. From both, and, and often, you know, I, I found that, of course, the Germans, a lot of them, the majority of them did not want to be there. They were also terrified teenage conscripts. Um, and so you have this sort of awful uh, fight taking place between uh, a bunch of absolutely petrified youngsters, none of whom want to be there, but all uh, who rise to the, the occasion, and particularly some of the accounts of Omaha Beach, you know, they are harrowing in the extreme. And you just have to salute the bravery of these teenagers who went in there and, and did their best. Yeah, and of course, you know your your uh, book also features some <laughs> eccentric characters. The one that comes to mind for me, I'm, I'm totally forgetting his name, but he's the um, Scottish. What well, he's some Scottish aristocrat who is, uh, you know, a leader of of a you know some squad or or, or um, company, you know, and he has his bagpiper, and he and the bagpiper's playing on on the personnel carrier onto the beach, and then he you know, relieves the the airborne men who had been dropped the night before with his bagpiper. It's just the audacity. I've, I've got to just add, add, to, add a bit of detail because it's a wonderful story. That's Lord Lovett, uh, who is this Highland chieftain, yeah, who went on, he had his monogrammed shirt, uh, like you say, his personal bagpiper. And he he, he went into onto D-Day with his hunting rifle. I mean, it was as if he was going out hunting deer on the moors of Scotland or something. I mean, absolutely incredible story. Uh, and, and provides, I think, to your point, it provides that steadfast um, totem for the young, uh, the young um, soldiers in the sense of, you know, he, he may be, he's our leader, he showed no fear, that emanates throughout ourselves. But also, as you said, the, the fear is an incredibly um, driving and encouraging force for one. Um, and and my, my last comment on that book was, you touched on a truth that is rarely discussed in, in mass history books. I, I think from a Western point of view, 
especially about World War II, the Germans are the bad guys, and they certainly are in, in almost every respect. However, the, the Poles, the Russians, the Czechs that were impressed into the army, they were terrified. They didn't want to be there. And so I really appreciated you providing that, those personal accounts of that shared experience from what most people wouldn't um, know or recognize. That's that's so true. I mean, they, they, these conscripts from Eastern Europe, absolutely, like you say, absolutely didn't want to be there. They didn't want to fight for Hitler. They absolutely didn't buy into the Nazi cause. And their stories, yeah, they're very rarely given a, a voice in books. And I have to say, one other community in the in the book that I really wanted to give voice to is the French civilians who lived on that coastline. Yes, because. That coastline, I mean, some of, some of the list, your listeners will have been on holiday to the Normandy beaches. It's lined with villages all the way the, along that stretch of coastline. And this was largely uh, women and children, some families who are living there. And they were to find themselves, uh, you know, under the heaviest naval bombardment in the history of warfare. And their accounts, um, largely unpublished, which I found in the archives of Normandy, are just sort of give a sense of just how terrifying it was to be, you know, in this war zone on that morning. Uh, and also the sense there's also a sense of um, exhilaration as well. I remember I, found, I interviewed one Frenchman who remembers as a young boy, he had to go go to the toilet in the night and he looked out of the bathroom window and the whole sea was just filled with ships. He, he'd never seen anything like it. And he told that story and he had tears in his eyes, you know, decades later, because it was such a powerful emotion to know that finally the end of the war is on its way and uh, remarkable to meet some of these people. I also love the, the anecdotal story you told of the English woman who had a home there who didn't evacuate. And when you know, the troops were tromping through her garden, came out and yelled at them. And they threw her in the cellar for her own protection. Yeah, she was a terribly grand, sort of rather aristocratic English lady who, uh, yeah, exactly. She sort of told them off for messing up her flower beds and everything. I mean, for goodness sake, this is a massive invasion taking place. And she's worried about her rose bushes. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the personal pride of personal property and cultivation, you have to give it to her for sure. That's for sure, yes. How did you find these stories? These of, of, you know, of course, in the archives, there's the generals, there's, you know, of course, Churchill. How did you find the 17-year-old the on Omaha Beach? How did you find his story? You know, what, what archives did you search and how did you find these people to interview them? I searched everywhere. I mean, that, that's what takes the time, actually, is to find, because these accounts are scattered across numerous archives. Um, I, 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 the first place I went to was the Cornelius Ryan archive. You know, obviously he wrote The Longest Day, which was turned into the Hollywood movie. Now, that is actually a very short book. And he interviewed um, hundreds and hundreds of people. And he interviewed them in the late 40s and early 50s when their memories of, of the events were still very, very fresh. So I used uh, a number of the accounts that he, he didn't put into his book. I also went down to New Orleans to the famous, you know, the National uh, the World War II Museum, which has, you know, a huge collection of oral interviews. But um, but really, it was uh, often it was the smaller archives um, in England and elsewhere, which had interviews that people just don't know about. They've never been uh, heard before. Uh, the French archives as well, I mentioned uh, for the story of, of those uh, local inhabitants. 
Um, yeah, and it's a simply a collection of... I, I mean, I collected um, many, many hundreds of these, and then you have to sort of sift them through because I was trying to tell it as a narrative, so tell, it, tell the day's events in a coherent fashion. So you have to focus down, uh, and, and unfortunately you can't use them all. But that that is sort of the the difficulty of, of the work. Even though I was only telling the story of one day, I had a massive information, and it's, you know, you have to filter it. So I'd like to get into your um, book that has Churchill's name in it, but but really focuses on those uh, operatives who who um, worked within SOE and, and 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 those two departments. And I, I've I've highlighted a page, um, and I'd love for you to tell um, just a, a very short description and how you found this one specific person who is fascinating to me, and that uh, that's Navi Clark, the man who created the, this caravan business and then is and then is you know the the one of the the mad scientists if you will of these special oper operations so yeah nobby clark cecil clark uh, to give him his real name is an amazing character he's a sort of classic british boffin you know these these um, incredibly clever but slightly scatty scientists and he was forever coming up with in inventions. He he uh, he he his job, his daytime job was uh, he designed trailers, caravans, we call them. Um, but as soon as the war came along, he turned his hand to developing weapons. And um, I found very little about him in any of the books or any of the archives. But I, I was intrigued by him because his name kept cropping up and it kept cropping up with Churchill's name as well. Anyway, I discovered that his daughter-in-law was still alive, very elderly, but still alive. And I contacted her and she lived down in the southwest of England. And she said, well, uh, you really ought to come down here because my spare bedroom is full of all of Cecil Clarke's letters, diaries, everything. So... I immediately bombed down there as fast as I could. And indeed, she had a room full of stuff with letters from Churchill, with, with uh, Cecil Clark's designs for these extraordinary weapons. The two most famous ones perhaps are the Limpet Mine, which was a magnetic mine, which was incredibly versatile. It took one diver to swim beneath a ship and slap this magnetic mine onto the underside, bang, it would blow up about an hour later and the ship would sink. It was used uh, throughout the war. And the other thing he designed was the bomb, a bespoke bomb grenade that was used to kill uh, Heydrich in Prague. Heydrich, of course, was the, uh, the butcher of Prague, uh, Hitler's favourite uh, governor. Um, and the plan was to assassinate him, take him out. He was a brutal, ruthless, nasty individual. But they needed a very, very special weapon to kill him because he always travelled everywhere in an armour-plated Mercedes, which are not easy to blow up. But Cecil Clark um, spent a long time designing this bomb that, in fact, did exactly what it was meant to do on the day when it was thrown under his car. It blew up with extreme force and it blew a hole through it sort of punched a hole through the bottom of the Mercedes and blew fragments of sort of detritus uh, splinters and horsehair which was in the seat that Heydrich was sitting on it blew these into his body and he died Heydrich indeed died of septicemia a couple of days later it was a very nasty weapon brutal uh, but and here is the fascinating thing about this whole story of ungentlemanly warfare is that Churchill from a very very well from the beginning of the war he realised that this war could not be fought 
as the British traditionally fought, as if they were playing a game of cricket, you know. It's like a game between gentlemen with rules and everything. No, said Churchill, when you're fighting against Hitler, you have to take your gloves off, you have to punch hard and you have to punch low. And so he brought in this team of individuals who were prepared to design some of the most lethal and horrible weapons that had ever been invented. And it's fascinating to someone like Cecil Clarke was a pacifist. He went on after the war to help found the campaign for nuclear disarmament. And yet he was a guy who designed some of the, the most brutal and effective weapons of the Second World War because he knew the stakes were very high. You know, if Hitler won, that was the end of civilization. So they were prepared. He very much was prepared to take off those gloves and, and fight hard. You know, you, you come to Churchill, at least in this book, in a very unique way. And, you know, the book and these characters are almost a manifestation of one of his most interesting aspects, in my opinion, of his character, which is his deep interest in technology and innovation to solve to solve practical and literal problems. Um, can you talk about how um, how, how did you find these these you know uh, these these um, I'll edit this out. How did you find these basically guerrilla fighters, and how did you come to this book? Did did you come from Winston Churchill, or did you come from individual? Uh, individual characters or an individual event? Well, I sought out the individuals, really, first of all. Um, of course, I wanted to tie into it, uh, tie Churchill into it, because without Churchill, this would never have happened. So it's worth remembering that at the beginning of the war, Churchill made himself Minister of Defence. There was no Ministry of Defence, but he made himself Minister of Defence. And he set up this unit called MD1, Ministry of Defence 1. This was to be... Um, it answered directly to him. It was to be staffed by brilliant scientific boffins um, and they were to develop this uh, uh, bespoke weaponry to be used on special operations. As Churchill put it, I use their brains and my power. And he circumnavigated everything. So um, money was tipped into MD1. No one ever quite knew where it came from. But if it had been sanctioned by Churchill, the money arrived. And his, his sort of conduit, uh, because he couldn't be dealing with them on a daily basis, but the prof, Professor Lindemann, um, his great friend and scientific sort of hero, um, was in, in daily contact with MD1. And so he was the sort of go-between. And, and his archive, in fact, which is housed in Oxford University, has an enormous amount of information that's never been used before about MD1 and about the, the guys that were working there in this, in this laboratory, essentially, which grew and grew. It started out with a staff of four or five people. And by the end, there were hundreds and hundreds of, of staff working there, developing and, 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 you know, fulfilling massive orders. So, I mean, one of the early successes they had was developing the sticky bomb, famous bomb that um, it stuck to a tank before exploding. And this was a, a, a huge sort of technological breakthrough. Churchill saw this, uh, he saw it in action, and he just sent a memo to, to MD1. Uh, and it just, the memo said, make one million. And that was it, um, with, with his familiar action this day. You know, this has to happen immediately. And the other thing about um, having Churchill on board meant that, you know, normally in, in Britain, everything went through the Ministry of Supply. So if you wanted to develop a tank, a gun, a, a missile or whatever it was, it had to be approved, sanctioned uh, by the Ministry of Supply. There was endless red tape. It took months and months to get anything done. 
Churchill said, this is ridiculous. We're in war. We need to do things immediately. And so MD1 was able to fulfil that for him uh, and, and get things when something worked, they could turn it around in a matter of days. And that was the beauty of MD1. I'm wondering why this book isn't a miniseries yet. Well, it is actually being developed. <laughs> no idea. So if I'm breaking news on the Glowworm podcast, this is going to break, you know, this is going to put us on the map. In fact, we've just got the pilot script for the first episode. Uh, it's brilliant. It's going to be, I mean, if it comes off and obviously these things are, are difficult, they're costly, they're time consuming, but it's, um, it's going to be good. It's going to be really fun. Okay, fun. so should I, should I edit this out or can that be shared? No, no, I think that can be shared. Uh, yeah, yeah. Please, by all means. <laughs> okay, well, you heard it here first, listeners. Um, incredible. Well, congratulations. I know I, I have, I have um, not personal experience, but I have known many people who have gone through this. And that's a great, great first, you know, that's a strong position to be in is that, of course, that pilot. Yeah. And we're very much focusing it on on the team brought in by Churchill because they're so interesting. Um, and of course, it should be mentioned because we've only mentioned men so far. But um, one of the things that Colin Gubbins, who is the head of the Special Operations uh, Executive, SOE, Colin Gubbins was very uh, keen to bring in women uh, into the organisation. And some of the key roles were occupied by women um, they were they were you know in the in the terms of the day they were called secretaries but they were far far more than that and they were involved deeply involved in the planning and the operational uh, sort of know-how of these of these uh, sabotage and guerrilla attacks that were going to take place across nazi occupied europe so their story is very interesting in fact the book opens with one uh, Joan Bright, who played a, a, a leading role at the beginning of, of uh, SOE, but also became sort of Churchill's PA and ended up going off to the Yalta conference, the Potsdam conference. She was everywhere, you know, and an amazing character who, in fact, only died a few years ago at a, an incredibly ripe old age. Wow. I'm trying to Google images of Nobby Clark, and I don't think I can find one because I'm trying to see who should play him. You know, we should we should... <laughs> Have our have our personal opinion, but I I don't see any photo of him. There are there should be some. If you put Cecil, uh, okay, Cecil V. Cecil. Clark, you have to put in, um, and I think you might come up. There's a there's a picture of him wearing a limpet mine. Actually, is that him? That is him. Yes. Oh, I see him. So he wasn't a big burly man. Well, he was sort of. Um, he was, well, he, I, I was imagining this giant, but but no, he is pretty well built, right? No, he's well built, bespectacled. Um, he looks, I don't know if you've got the front view of him, because there's one of them is you just see the limpet mine on his back. But um, he, he, he looks a bit like a sort of classic English boffin, I think. Uh, um, yeah, and, you know, his experiments were always going wrong. Things were blowing up all over the place. Uh, you know, great. Uh, there's, there's a lot of comedy uh, surrounding Cecil Clark, actually. Um, but, but also in a, on a serious side, I mean, he was, he'd fought in the First World War in an explosives battalion and he'd seen the horror of war. And so he really knew what it was like to be in the front line of a very brutal battle, you know. Yeah, I can, I can, I can speculate that that experience... Uh, um, you know, in, inspired him to create devices that could that could not halt war in its tracks, but drastically alter situations to avoid, you know, all out 
you know, person to person combat, like the, the limpet mine was meant to cripple a Navy, thus have broader ripple effects. Yeah, and, and, and actually, on that point, it's really would be worth pointing out the um, rep the RAF, the Royal Air Force, had repeatedly tried to take out the Peugeot factory in France because the Peugeot factory had been requisitioned by the Nazis and, being, and it was the biggest industrial plant in Europe and it was being used to turn out vast quantities of weaponry for the German army. The RAF had tried to bomb this on new, numerous occasions from the air and they had missed it every single time. But what they had succeeded in doing was bombing all the surrounding villages and killing numerous French civilians. Uh, so what um, the SOE decided to do was to send in one saboteur laden with limpet mines and other weapons, break into the factory at night and simply put limpet mines um, onto all the key components of the machinery making tanks and, and missiles and aircraft. And this was a chap called Harry Ray, who spoke fluent French, so he could get away with being, you know, he sounded like a Frenchman. He was parachuted in. And he did just that. He recruited a number of people from the factory, factory workers, and, uh, and explosives were dropped from England. And he did exactly what he was meant to do. He broke into the factory and at a cost of zero human lives, managed to almost take out this entire industrial plant. It was a quite extraordinary um, act of industrial sabotage. And this is what SOE was about. It was about, at minimum cost to human life, destroying infrastructure, the fabric that was needed by the Wehrmacht. So they'd, you know, they'd, they'd blow up bridges, for example. You could, you, you, they'd get blow up gasoline plants, you know. Um, they realised from a very early, uh, early on in the war that a highly mechanised army like Hitler's um, was absolutely dependent on supply lines, on, on, on fuel um, and on, on infrastructure. So take out the infrastructure and essentially you've paralysed that army. That's, that's really what they were trying to do. So although they were developing very nasty weapons, it was actually in some ways a humanitarian approach to warfare. Yeah, incredible, incredible book. Um, so if I can end up by asking you, you know, as somebody who, you know, grew up learning about Churchill, who has written about Churchill, um, what, what is your, what is your, um, what's your understanding of, of, at least to you personally, of his legacy today? And, you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but as somebody who has, you know, kind of seen him from many different sides, why is he still relevant today, if, if you think he is? Well, that's interesting because uh, he's going through a bit of a, a, a dark period at the moment. With it's, there's a huge amount, he's coming in for a huge amount of criticism. You know, there were the Churchill statue, the famous Churchill statue in, in Parliament Square, was attacked uh, recently. Um, Churchill is a controversial figure. Uh, you know, in the in, at the end of the First World War, he'd been the one to sanction the use of chemical and biological weapons against uh, the Bolsheviks. However, whenever there is a vote on the greatest Britain who's ever lived, Churchill always comes out number one. And the fact is, he pulled the nation through the Second World War victoriously. And anyone who's done that is always going to be the great hero, I think. And he also brought on board America, which was absolutely essential for the victory in the Second World War, kept up a very good personal relationship with Roosevelt, and um, and also managed to keep Stalin on board in the Second World War as well, which, of, of course, the Eastern Front was to play an incredibly important role, which is often written out of the history books as well. We tend to forget the slaughter taking place on the Eastern Front, uh, which enabled D-Day to be launched and successfully carried, away, carried off. So I think that Churchill... Uh, 
it's his wartime achievements that really signal him out as the greatest Briton that, you know, the, that's why he is always voted uh, number one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as you would agree, we're all, you know, all of us humans, you know, we, we have make mistakes and have flaws and sometimes those flaws perpetuate throughout life. But oftentimes, you know, whether it's our actions or our words, you know, we evolve and, and we are, you know, we don't have the same point of view, at least most of us on a single subject for it's our entirety of our life. And, you know, and to your point, Churchill's singular contribution to, in terms of leadership at a, at a, at a certainly an unprecedented time in history, leadership of, of, of others, of inspiring others. And, you know, of course, you know, he'll get sticked by, well, he was 65. What did he really do in the war? Well, of course he wasn't up in the Spitfires fighting, fighting the Luftwaffe. Of course he wasn't on the, on the ships, you know, patrolling the, patrolling the um, English channel, but he was, he was the one who, who was encouraging them to do so. And we talked about leadership with your book and in, in D-Day and it's that um, individual leadership, which can really shine through, whether it be a single day or of course, many years. So, uh, you know, I appreciate appreciate your point of view on his legacy. Thank you, Giles. Um, <clears throat> so, if I can ask, I I know I already broke news about the the pilots. Um, do you have any new books in the works that you can share the topic of? I do, and in fact, I'm coming to America very soon to uh, for research okay. of the American end of this. This is a great story. I'm really enjoying so far researching it. It's a story very little known of the very small Allied mission, British and American, to Stalin during the Second World War, working alongside Stalin in the Kremlin. And I'm sure you and all your listeners will know one of the key American people was Avril Harriman, uh, who ended up as the American ambassador there. And he took his daughter Kathleen with him as his aide. So uh, they are the sort of focus of the American end of the story. And the British end is focused on the uh, man who also became the British ambassador uh, to Russia during the war, which is a massively eccentric chap called Sir Archibald Clark Kerr, who is wonderful, who forged an incredibly close personal relationship with Stalin. It's one of the most bizarre relationships I've ever come across. Um, but their job, both him and Harriman, their job was to keep Stalin in the war. They did not want a repeat of the First World War when Russia had pulled out. Um, so that was their job. Obviously, there's a whole Lend-Lease was uh, tied up with that, bringing in munitions. But there are some wonderful set-piece events, banquets, uh, etc., that took place there. So um, both, of, both men, both uh, Clark Kerr and Harriman, were very keen to try and build up a sort of psychological profile of Stalin. And that uh, forms part of the book as well. Who was this man? He was so genial. He was so, he was so uh, personable uh, to them. They had a really warm relationship with him. And yet he was a mass murderer. He'd killed millions of his own subjects. And they were just perplexed by him. And they tried to fathom the character of this evil dictator. So if I can ask as my final question, for those who want to prepare... Um, to read your book once it's final out. Do you have a recommendation on a, a great Stalin biography that though, you know, people can read to um, get to know him a little bit better? Well, I mean, the one I really enjoy reading, uh, and it's an easy read, is the Simon Sebag Montefiore uh, yeah. biography of Stalin, which um, I think is probably the most readable uh, of, the, of the ones I've read, yeah. 
Um, actually, there are, but there are other fascinating accounts, much lesser known. I mean, in fact, the other day I was reading the autobiography of Stalin's daughter, Svetlana. And that's extraordinary as well, because you, get, you really get Stalin as he was in his own home, you know. And she, of course, left Russia and, and, and ended up living the rest of her life in, in the United States. So, um, you know, once you start dipping into a subject, you uncover fascinating accounts. Well, Giles, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me today. Um, and please let us know when, when that ne next book is about to be published. I will do. Thank you very much for having me on. 